This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Again, Happy New Year. It's good to be with you all. As I had mentioned, I had uh, mentioned last week that we had started a new sermon series on Luke, uh, foolishly forgetting that we still had Three Kings Day uh, and Epiphany. So if you know anything about Puerto Rico and the Three Kings that are still out, uh, it's a holiday that is celebrated more uh, in Puerto Rico than it is in the States, generally speaking, called Epiphany. And it's the day when the Lord Jesus was revealed to the nations. So the Magi came from the east and they saw Jesus and he was revealed. So maybe you've seen some of that language uh, throughout our service today where where Jesus was revealed and made known. We do have some holdouts of this uh, in our culture, actually. Uh, If you think about the 12 days of Christmas, you know, I think I grew up singing that song and I was like, is this the 12 days leading up to Christmas? Like, what's the story with the 12 days of Christmas? And it's the 12 days after Christmas. And when I learned that, I thought, why? Like, we already, you know, did the whole present thing on Christmas. Uh, but it kind of makes some sense. They give gifts for the 12 days of Christmas. And then in Puerto Rico, oftentimes they give gifts not on Christmas Day, but on Epiphany, because that is when Jesus received his gifts. So there is actually some logic to it. Uh, and, and maybe the way that we practice in the States is a little bit backwards. Um, all that to say, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 today. Uh, so that's our, that's our intro for why we're in Matthew and not in Luke. Uh, like I said, we we're going to be last week. And I, I've got a question. Um, have you, have you ever been a part of a major event that you just felt like you had to respond to? Or like something has happened in the world and you're like, man, I gotta go do something about this. Margaret and I do, do not really follow baseball at all. But we lived in Kansas City, the town that I grew up in, when uh, the Kansas City Royals won the World Series. And this was a major event for Kansas City. How major? In the two years that I taught in high school, I never once got a snow day in Kansas City. We missed snows all those years. But when the Kansas City Royals won the World Series, they canceled school the next day. So I got a Royals day in the two years that I taught there. This was a major event. It hadn't happened since 1985. The the city was alive and you could feel it. This major event merited a major response. But Margaret and I were somewhat on the outs, not being people that follow baseball. I'm not even really sure we watched the final game. I think we may have watched some. She's not in here, so I don't don't know. I don't remember. Um, And so when the day came and we heard that there's going to be a huge party downtown, uh, we were a little slow in our response. We're like, wow, should we go? I don't know. Yeah, how, how, like, and we're kind of tuning into the news thing, and it's like, everybody's going. Like, there's no royal shirts for sale anywhere. You can't get anything blue Like, it just doesn't exist. So you're just like, I don't know, I'm going to wear the bluest shirt that I have that matches that thing, and we're going to try to go downtown. But by the time we actually try to get out of the door, the news reports are already coming in that the highway is gridlocked. People are leaving their cars in the middle of the highway and walking the rest of the way downtown. The bus services that were supposed to shuttle people downtown for the party were overrun by demand. And so Margaret and I stayed home. We had failed to recognize just how major of an event it was. We had failed to prepare adequately. We missed the significance of what had happened. Major events demand a major response. The birth of Jesus Christ, next to his death and resurrection, which we celebrate at Easter, is a major event 
of the world. And it demands a major response. But I think sometimes we're at a loss of what that response might look like. And today, we get to look at what an adequate response to such a major event looks like in the response of these magi, these wise men. And an adequate response to this major event of Christ himself is marked by recognizing, by following, and by worshiping. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This ends the reading of God's word, and although the grass withers and the flowers fade, Christ's life, death, and resurrection will always merit a response. If you would, please be seated. Now, we're talking about the three kings. Uh, the Magi, the wise men. Uh, and I have a little bit of dreams and uh, kind of collective fiction that we have created uh, to shatter uh, just right at the forefront. And also know that I'm probably going to be a little bit uh, uncareful with my words as well. So first off, it never says that they're kings. I'm probably going to say that they're kings throughout here all the time. Uh, it says that they are wise men from the East. It says uh, that they are Magi. Now, they appear to be quite wealthy, so we might assume that they have some sort of status of of ruling or at least own large tracts of land, Um, but it just says that they are wise. Now, that word magi is probably where we get our English word for magic. Uh, They probably weren't magicians, uh, but it does appear that they investigated this line that existed in the ancient world between astronomy and astrology, Uh, and so it kind of walks into that realm that we would be Um, uh, uh, have questions about. The Bible doesn't say that there was three magi. It only says that there were three gifts. In all likelihood, it was an entourage of people. The star didn't rise in the east, as some of our songs claim, um, because they would have been from the west. Or maybe if it did rise from the east, at least led them west. Um, Some speculate that maybe it was a supernova, but frankly, the Bible isn't that interested in the star, although we may be. The Bible is interested in what the star points to. A major event that demands a major response. 
And as we look at the wise men to discern what kind of response we are supposed to have to this major event, um, the first step that we have to do is recognize that a major event has happened. So this will be our first point. Recognize that a major event has happened. This is uh, where Margaret and I struggled with the Kansas City Royals. We did not recognize how major of an event had happened, and so we failed to respond accordingly. These magi, these wise men, recognized this event. They saw a star. They recognized its significance, that a significant major event was happening. This is shocking. And it's shocking, first off, because uh, as I mentioned, astronomy and astrology were kind of mixed. We might say astronomy is like the scientific study of, of uh, the movement of the heavens, uh, and astrology might be applying some sort of uh, spiritual morals that we can discern from those things. The Bible clearly condemns astrology, the discerning of meaning by stars. Jeremiah 10, 2 says not to learn the ways of the nations and be dismayed at the signs that you see in the stars. Don't learn like the nations do. In Isaiah 47, it will describe the people who ponder and divide the heavens um, and who look at the stars in the sky as lost and as people who weary God. The Bible has no time, the Old Testament has no time for astrology. How is it that these men who discern, divide, and deduce things from the heavens can recognize the significance of this event. These men were breaking God's law. They were doing things they should not have done. They were sinners. They were pagans. But God condescended to them. God used what was significant to them to show them that something significant was happening. This is who God is. God condescends to sinners, to pagans, to those who have no known contact with his prophecies and promises. This is the nature of who God is to make himself known to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and even to us in the blindness of our own hearts. But I want to be clear Although the star itself was a significant event that God condescended to use for these men, they couldn't have realized just how significant it was until they went and met the Word of God Himself. Until they saw Jesus in the house, outside of a small town, outside of the big city. Until they saw Jesus who was insignificant enough that Herod didn't even bother to leave his palace. Insignificant enough for the scribes and the chief priests to simply ignore it. No, it can't be true. The star was a sign that pointed them beyond their limited knowledge into intimate and personal knowledge with God himself. God works in mysterious ways. He uses signs that I don't understand and maybe that I can't even see that causes people to recognize a significant event to point them to him. And although I may not know a lot about those signs, what I do know is this, that God's greatest, most clear sign, his greatest message, his greatest condescension to us is Jesus Christ himself. And I know that the only place where we are sure to see him clearest is scripture. We may have many signs that cause us in our life that point us towards faith in Jesus Christ, but the only thing that polishes those signs that show us who God really is, is Jesus Christ himself found in the scriptures. And so the question is this, do you long 
to recognize Christ and his significance. God is speaking to you clearly in his word. His word always reveals to us more and more clearly who he is and just how significant Jesus is to our lives. And we will see in a second that reading and knowing the Bible alone isn't enough. We actually have to follow Christ. But you can see that Scripture is where God condescends to speak in a language that we can understand. Have you ever thought about that? Like God could have just used heaven speak and said, hey, I gave you this book. If you can figure out what it says, you know, it's in a language that you don't know. You got to learn it. Um, and it's in a language that no one knows. It's just, it's, it's the heavenly language that the Holy Spirit has to intercede with ours with groanings too deep for words. Um, if you can figure it out, then you can actually know who I am. No. God spoke to us in limited, broken, earthly languages. The Holy Spirit must intercede in our prayers with groanings too deep for words, maybe some heaven speak, because we are a people who are bound by language. God knows this. It's how he made us. And so he didn't come down to be unintelligible to us, but he came to be intelligible to us. God condescended himself, took on flesh to be with us, He condescended to be embodied, to be gentle with our limitations, to recognize the significance of this event. We must allow God to show us in his word just how significant Jesus is. The first part of a godly response to this greatest, most major event is recognizing the event, and we need God's word to do so, recognizing the significance. But recognition alone isn't good enough. I mentioned before that knowing your Bible alone isn't enough uh, to appropriately respond to the great event. Um, You do have to actually respond. You have to follow after. And we see these magi, these wise men, recognized the event, yes, but they also followed after the star. Some say that they followed up to 1,000 miles, many months of travel in that day. Very expensive. Just think of it today in today's standards, to leave behind your business, your occupation, for months at a time and spend that on a costly journey is crazy. I mean, it makes sense maybe if you're going on vacation, but maybe we could almost think of it uh, like the costly trips to space that the super wealthy are making. We could accuse them of not having a better way to spend that wealth, but regardless, this sort of journey has a real tangible cost, and most of us are like, why would you spend that money doing that? Bragging rights? Is that what the wise men were for? Bragging rights? I think most people probably thought they were crazy. (laughs) You're going to find the king of the Jews to worship him? But these wise men were sure that there was a king of the Jews that were born. And they were sure in verse 2 that this king was worth worshiping. So they took on great cost. Now, when they arrived at Jerusalem, the city, the major capital of the Jews, they would have assumed that everybody here would have recognized the same event, but they were shocked to find that no one recognized the event that they did. They were shocked that no one was rejoicing and searching for the king as well. Uh, They expected to find him in a palace, and instead they found Herod. Now, if the Magi had a correct response, right? They not only recognized, but they followed after. 
In this next section of the passage, we're going to see three different characters of people that respond poorly. So first, let's notice the people of Jerusalem. They don't follow. Why? Because they're afraid with King Herod, verse 3. Instead of being people who rejoiced at God's fulfillment of his ancient prophecy, they were afraid. Not afraid of God, but afraid of a lesser king. I think the reason many of us don't follow after Jesus with our lives is because we're afraid of lesser kings. Kings of productivity, kings of judgment, kings of prestige and honor, kings of education. We're too afraid of lesser kings to follow the true king. We might recognize it as an important event, and Christianity might intrigue us, especially around the holidays, but we still cling to our stuff too much. Maybe if I could overlay this uh, into this event in Kansas City with the Kansas City Royals, right? Uh, Margaret and I appreciated the comfort of our own one-bedroom apartment a little bit too much to go partake in the joy of downtown Kansas City. Now, the joy in downtown Kansas City after winning the World Series is nothing compared to the joy that the Magi found at the end of their following. Because when they saw Jesus, they were exceedingly joyful. The best thing had happened to them. The wise men followed Jesus and found joy. The people of Jerusalem, clinging to their comforts and their own own view of life, found fear. The next person with a poor response is Herod himself. At first, he was troubled. Uh, but if you know the rest of the story, just five verses after our section, like if you were to open up Matthew um, chapter 2 and then keep reading, five verses after ours, Herod would be so protective of what he thinks he's earned in his life, so afraid of a challenger to his throne, that he will order the murder of all of the male children under two years of age in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus will escape by being warned by God in a dream. Now, Herod's fury here is irrational. If it's God's plan, he's king of the Jews, mind you. (laughs) He asks his own people, like, hey, where's the Christ supposed to come from? If it's God's plan, did he really think he could thwart it? Was he a king that really knew his scriptures? If it isn't from God, why be concerned at all? He's the person with all of the power, and he was ruthless with his power. It's irrational, but what we learn from Herod is that our sin is always irrational. There are many who would set out to destroy the faith if they could today, like Herod was trying to back then, literal antichrists. I think more often, though, what we experience is scoffers, uh, people who don't care one way or the other and just uh, are kind of cynical. But in response to those true tyrants that would try to squash out the faith, who have such a violent response to such a great event towards us, the first thing we need to recognize about the story is that God delivers Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. God protects his people. Think in some sense of how vulnerable a carpenter, his wife, and child were. They had just transplanted to Bethlehem. Now he's trying to put a roof over their heads after the whole stable incident, because that didn't go over well. Patching together new networks of work opportunities. He's probably struggling to find work. And suddenly they're warned in a dream that the king of the known region 
is after them and their child. King Herod couldn't squash Christianity any more than anyone else has been able to since or will be able to ever. There are those who will respond violently to the gospel and our fear of them should not drive us, but our confidence in that the Lord delivers and protects his people. Jesus' family is an example, as is church history. But unless we think that King Herod is just an example for outside of us, let us not forget that our own sin makes us just as irrational as Herod, because our own sin is a violent declaration that our kingdom is better and Jesus' kingdom is worth crushing. We rebel like Herod in our sin. But there's one more group of people who didn't respond by following like the Magi, and that's the chief priests and the scribes. Just think about how ludicrous this is. They had just quoted the scripture that their Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. And there was an entourage before them saying that they had seen signs in heaven. They had traveled a long journey and they said, we're here to find this person and we're going to go to Bethlehem too. And the chief priests and scribes did nothing. As one commentator said, they were content to quote scripture and go home. Out of all of the failure in responses, I think the chief priest and scribes is the one that probably hits home most for us. Are we content to quote scripture and go home? Or will we follow Jesus? They should have followed the Magi. If the first part of the appropriate response to such a great event of Christ's birth is to recognize that it's happening, which maybe they could do by quoting scripture, the second must be to follow him, to pursue him where he may be found. And for the Magi, this meant seeking the physical place where the Lord was. But I think for those of us who have read the scriptures and profess with our mouths that such a great event has happened, for us, our calling is to follow Jesus in our lives, to live our lives in subjection to his rule that assumes his reign fighting back and confessing our sin, laying aside our pride in our own kingdoms and seeking his, not being apathetic to what the Lord tells us to do, but pursuing him with fervor and passion, to be a people whose lives are marked by the passionate pursuit of Jesus. This is what it means to adequately follow. And I think is what the Magi's lives were marked by. They heard the news, they saw the signs in the heavens, they went to Jerusalem, they got it polished up a little bit, and they said it's going to be in Bethlehem. So they go to Bethlehem, and they find exceeding joy. This leads us to our last point, though, because the last part of responding, of a great response to such a great event, after recognizing and following after, is to fall down and worship. The Magi listened to the king and went on their way. They followed the star, and when they found the house, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And in their joy, they fell down and they worshiped. Our following Jesus ultimately leads to us seeing Jesus at work everywhere. And when we see him at work in our lives and in the lives of people around us, we fall down in worship. Worship of his glory, his majesty, his splendor, and his love. But... Sometimes our idea of worship can get a little abstract. Um, it can either be like limited to just singing songs or we can expand it to just like our entire lives. And so what did the Magi actually do when they worshiped? It says that they opened up their treasures 
and gave him gifts. Now, we don't often talk about people having treasures today. Wealth, maybe, gifts, talents, uh, not treasure. I feel like when I hear the word treasure, I just think of pirates, you know? But I wonder if we can kind of reclaim this idea of treasures that they have in this way. People that have something to treasure assume that it is excellent, that it's, it's worth treasuring. And often to have something excellent, you have to work really hard for it. People that excel at something work very hard at it. Um, I had a, a friend that was a chef in Chicago, and he was excellent at his craft. And he had to work hard at it. And, and I knew that he worked long hours, lots of practice, had to, had to study. But it was his joy when he had people over to his house for dinner to spill that excellence over into the people that visited his house so that I got to experience something that should be treasured. And people that work hard to excel at something often don't have to hide the fact um, that they worked hard to do it. It is their joy to share it. The same goes for artists, musicians, bakers. They work hard to make their gifts excellent. And I believe that the Magi probably worked hard at their trade to give excellent gifts in worship. Excellencies fit for a king. One key aspect of worshiping Jesus is working hard to give Jesus excellent gifts. Now, one way we do this is through our tithes and offerings, our actual money, literally our, our gifts and offerings. But I'm wondering if we can go even deeper than this. Because it means leveraging everything that you are, all of your gifts, strengths, talents, to give gifts to the king. Administrators, you administrate with fairness and equity, bringing king, Christ's kingdom to bear in your sphere of work, and you give this gift to the king. Teachers, you explain how marvelous God's works are, educating others on his majesty, creativity, and ingenuity, the depth and surprise of our world and how it reflects God. Artists, you represent and create beauty, offering to the king works that glorify and express and reveal God's goodness, love, judgment, salvation, and mystery, and you give these gifts to the king. Parents, you multiply and you fill the earth. You train up your children to recognize God's work in the world and to point others to it. You give these gifts to the king. Business owners, you employ, manage, create, and leverage economies so that you might give these gifts to the king. We work hard to give excellent gifts to our king in every sphere of our life. But I think this raises a question. Does Jesus need our gifts? <laughs> like, doesn't our excellencies just pale in comparison to whatever he's got in heaven? Well, let's look at the gifts of the Magi. You know, one bottle of myrrh could be worth up, upwards of $10,000 in today's terms. $10,000. That's a costly gift for a two-year-old. But what is $10,000 to the king of the universe? Do your gifts, even your most costly gifts, really matter to the king of the universe? Now, I've referenced this part of the story already, uh, but you know King Herod, when he finds out that the Magi have duped them, he orders the murder of all the children to and under after ascertaining the time that the star had risen. Um, 
So at this point, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus have been in Bethlehem for a little bit of a while. They're no longer uh, in the barn. You know, they moved to a house. Uh, Jesus might be two or younger. Um, <clears throat> as they have just transplanted to Bethlehem. Just think about this, right? They made this long journey while Mary was pregnant to, to Bethlehem. Um, they say usually it takes about two years for a place to feel like home. I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but basically any time Margaret and I have lived someplace, it takes about two years before we really feel like, man, this is home. Maybe Jesus at about two years old, Joseph and Mary just starting to feel like, man, this is home. And to be ripped up and transplanted again out of fear that someone is going to murder their child. Being a refugee isn't cheap. People say uh, that to travel to a new home in a place where you don't understand the culture, where you don't speak the language all that well, where you don't have networks to get work, can be exceedingly difficult for the wealthy, nonetheless the poor. We don't know how Joseph and Mary used the gifts that they were given by the, by the wise men. But one commentator speculated, and I think it's probably true, that Joseph and Mary sold these gifts to finance their travel to Egypt. And so unbeknownst to the wise men at the time, they're giving incredibly costly gifts to the king of the universe that would actually be utilized to protect his physical life. But more important for them than knowing the purpose that their gifts were being used for was just that they offered them in worship. I'm sure that some in their entourage of wise men, some looked at that and said, that seems wasteful. And you know, this happens again in Jesus's life. Uh, there's a woman that comes and pours a whole bottle of expensive perfume on Jesus's feet and then wipes it with her hair. And some in that story too thought that it was wasteful. And it had a purpose that maybe she didn't know or her disciple or the disciples weren't um, willing to accept yet, which was anointing Jesus for his death and burial. But that wasn't why she offered it. She offered it because she was overflowing with worship. Primarily, Jesus values our gifts, our costly gifts, because they are offered in worship of him. But rest assured that Jesus also knows the gifts that he's going to be given. And Jesus does not waste the gifts that are given to him. Jesus tells us how these gifts ought to be used and how they ought to be serve, used to serve his kingdom. And he says, when you use these gifts, you should use it to serve the least of these. To those that are hungry, we feed. To those that are thirsty, drink. To, to strangers, welcomed. And to the naked, clothed. To those sick or imprisoned, Jesus says that when he comes again in judgment, he will surprise the world by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you gave these gifts to me. Of course, we cannot create food like the king of the universe could. We cannot miraculously heal people like the king of the universe can. Even our most excellent gifts pale in comparisons to the Lord's and also heaven's. And yet the Lord cherishes these gifts like a father cherishes something made by his children. You know, Joaquin, uh, you know, is like learning how to use scissors. And so he's just like, just recently figured it out. He's like cutting through paper and then he folds it up and not like origami style, something beautiful, right? Just kind of wad it up into a big ball. And then he hands it to me and he says, daddy, I made this for you. 
and I cherished it. Not because of its exceeding skill or beauty, because it was made for me. Jesus cherishes your gifts offered in worship, your costly gifts, your most excellent gifts offered in worship of him because they are made for him. They're still gifts made to Jesus with dedication in worship. So appropriate response to such a great event is to recognize, to follow, and to worship. But I think there's one more thing that we can learn from the Magi and from their gifts. Um, I mentioned that these gifts may have been utilized by Mary and Joseph to help finance the escape of Jesus' family to Egypt, actually providing for the physical safety of our Lord. Uh, Usually in the ancient Near East, when emissaries came and gave gifts to kings, um, often gifts were given back, that they would take back to their own lands as a symbol of their friendship and relationship. So the wise men are there giving costly gifts to Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in a small podunk town. And they seemingly have nothing to give back. No token of their relationship, nothing worthy of wealthy spaces and courts. And I say seemingly because although the Magi gave to protect Jesus' life, Jesus would give his life to rescue theirs. The life of the world given for the life of the world. The greatest gift that the world has ever received was found in that house by the Magi that day. Jesus would die to rescue them, to rescue us from eternal separation from God, to forgive them of their sin and to give them his own righteousness and call them children of the living God. The best gift ever offered was on display. The Magi, recognizing the significance of the event, they followed after Jesus and they worshiped him, giving gifts, even if those gifts paled in comparison to the riches of heaven. And they did all this because they had found the greatest, most significant gift that had ever happened, and they met him face to face. The most significant event in history is God come to us. And the response of the Magi show us that the appropriate response that we should have is by recognizing, following, and worshiping this Lord. The greatest event in all of history is resurrected today and stands before you declaring through his word and asking, what will your response be to him? Will it be a response of denial or of worship of the King of kings and Lord of lords? Amen. There's a number of ways uh, in which Scripture calls us to respond to such a great event. Uh, It calls us to respond by hearing His Word preached, by declaring God's Word back to Him as we did in our call to worship. Uh, It calls us uh, to respond by confessing our sins and being assured of our pardon. Um, And it also calls us to partake of the sacraments, one of which is the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, as often as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. Break this bread, drink this wine. Remember that the one who came for you gave an excellent and costly gift. More excellent and more costly than you could have possibly imagined. And what we should walk away from this is is that we are more cherished and more loved than we ever could have possibly thought. 
because it is Jesus himself who invites you to this table. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and having blessed, blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, as I minister in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. Again, this is not the table of Trinity Church, nor our denomination. It is the Lord's table. What we believe is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the risen Lord invites those who have been united to him by baptism that recognize his rule and that have followed him and worship him to come and feast with him, to know that they are at peace with God. If you're not sure that Jesus is king, if you're not sure that you're Uh, that you want to submit your life to his rule and to his reign, if you're not sure that he is all who he says he is, I'd ask you to refrain from this section of our service. Continue to explore, continue to learn, continue to hear uh, and learn from the example of the Magi. In a moment, I will pray, and then we can come down the center aisle to the two serving stations on my right and my left here. Um, the server there uh, will hand you the bread. There's also gluten-free options available. Just notify your server uh, if you need that. Uh, and then there is white grape juice and red wine. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Our God and our King, you have not abandoned us, but you have come to us. And it is always so much more humble than we would ever expect. It wasn't in palaces, but a stable. It wasn't in wealth and splendor, but in humility. And Father, even this meal, simple bread and wine, a symbol of your humility and yet your willingness to be with us. Lord, we ask that as we partake of these elements, that we might be brought deeper into faith with you, that we might see you more clearly by tasting you. And I ask this in your name. Amen.